John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Uh, it's good to be with you. I've been, again, on the road traveling. Never a dull moment. <laughs> Chicago, Atlanta, next week, Little Rock, and then points yonder. And I know, John, you've been traveling, and even you, Todd, have been, uh, you know, out of pocket. If you Mostly will. in circles, but I'll be doing a little traveling next week myself. Good. But we got to have a shout out for John because he turned another year older. And just because he's another year older doesn't mean he's worse for the wear. So congratulations on making it another year and putting up with me and Todd for another year. Indeed. It is a challenge. <laughs> yeah, we will make you old quickly. Trust me. Well, we today have- <laughs> we do have an interesting uh, an accident regarding banner towing, and uh, this one involves a young lady who was uh, the pilot flying out in Riverside, California, flying a modified Cessna 150 that had an upgraded engine in it, and uh, they also added some auxiliary fuel tanks. And what we're going to talk about basically is dissecting a variety of things that not only apply to banner towers, but just apply to pilots in general, because there's a lot of lessons to be learned out of this single accident. And Todd, I know you've dissected this one, but you know this young lady, relatively inexperienced, she's got very limited time, about 500 hours total time. She is, is a commercial uh, rated or certificated pilot with a flight instructor certificate. But, you know, that doesn't mean anything when it comes to banner towing, because you do have to have that kind of training and proficiency. But, you know, now she's flying a modified airplane. And one thing that comes to mind when I first read this was, of course, did she really understand all the aircraft systems because it was modified? Did she understand especially the fuel system, since that seems to be the key factor in this particular event that initiated um, her to take some corrective actions, which also she failed to uh, to evaluate properly and led to the demise of the aircraft. And the aircraft in this case was a Cessna 150. And the uh, report says that she had about uh, 
a fairly good amount of time, like 120 hours, I believe, in, in this make and model. But it didn't say how much time, 125 hours rather, but didn't say how much time she had in this particular aircraft. And like you pointed out, the way this report was written, it seems as though this aircraft was modified in ways that's unusual for a Cessna 150 or 152. Yeah, absolutely. And and I got confused because the investigator jumped around, never explained the fuel system. And so it was really hard to understand, you know, really how the, the fuel transferred. It's evident that apparently they must have some sort of boost pump that pulled the fuel out of the auxiliary tank, pumped it into the main tank, because unless they change the fuel selector, Cessna 150 only has both and off. <laughs> so... Um, again, you know, understanding your systems on your aircraft, but now she's towing a banner, she's coming back. And one of the other prominent, uh, issues in this accident, besides the fuel system and, and the operation of the engine was the weather, um, looking and the board did a pretty comprehensive weather study. And just based on the summary, the investigator wrote, it's evident that this airplane should have never been up, especially towing a banner where you have low-level wind shear. You have gusty winds over 21 knots. And if that in any way, shape, or form is a crosswind, that's going to exceed the crosswind limitations for that particular aircraft. And so we get back to what John is always preaching at the end of our show, John, and that is pre-flight planning. The question is, you have a pilot who's going to try and tow a banner with us with an airplane that's just slugging along in the air, even with these gusty wind conditions. You know, the pre-flight planning on her part was bad, but then you also have company responsibility. You know, they may have they may have been lulled a little bit into into ignoring those warning signs by the fact that this airplane had that uh, upgraded engine. So, you know, it might have felt like it had plenty of horsepower, which maybe it did, but it certainly wasn't enough for the conditions that the airplane was flying in. So it's, uh, you know, you have to take all of that into consideration when you're figuring out if you have a safe flight or not. And, and you know, just reading the cryptic factual, um, <laughs> it's obvious that she had conducted the flight. She came back, she dumped the banner and was trying to land. But during the course of trying to land at the airport, I think it was Flaybob Airport in Riverside, um, you know, she apparently drifted down the runway, overshot the runway, had a tailwind that caused her to recognize that she wasn't going to be able to put the airplane down on the runway. But somewhere along the line, the way the report is written, she experienced only having 40% power available the investigator never tells you how that happened or i mean she wrote about it in her statement that she only had 40 percent power well again if you're running out of fuel out of a fuel tank you either have an engine that's running or it's not running uh, where does 40 percent power come from and how did they make that determination but the ntsb just took it lock stock and barrel and said okay she had 40 percent power well the pilot in her statement said, I tried to land. I had to do a go around with 40% power. Who does a go around with 40% power? And then apparently during the climb out on the go around, she lost total engine power. And I have issues with what she tried to do. 
after that, but just talking about where did the 40% power come from? And oh, by the way, if I've got a partial power loss, I think I'm going to make the decision and commit regardless of the tailwind. I'm going to plan my landing so that my aim point or my target is well before the runway. Because if I know I have a tailwind, I know the tailwind's going to blow me to the runway, if not over the runway, rather than use your normal aim point. The investigator never really talked to her or asked questions to see if she, they could ferret that information out. Yeah, it seemed like the report is, uh, oh, you know, it almost seems like it was written by four or five different people that only had a piece of the information. Yeah. And, and again, now she's in the air. She's in the traffic pattern. She's going to land on a different runway. She experiences a total power loss. And the way the, re the report is written and the information she's provided, she tried an air start multiple times, I think two, um, while she's in the traffic pattern at a low altitude. To hell with that. You don't even think about that. You turn that airplane to a runway, to a piece of pavement, and try and get the airplane down. Because at that altitude, to help with the restart, especially if, if you don't understand the fuel system, you want that airplane heading to, to that piece of pavement um, to at least get it down safely. Well, because, and again, the report is very cryptic. It doesn't have a lot of detail. All it says is that she, and also in her statement, she said, as she was trying to do these restarts and the restarts were unsuccessful, she looked down and all there was was roads, uh, a road and something, you know, some clear area. And she ended up having to put the airplane down there. And again, you got to look at all of the environmental factors. Why was she continuing apparently to fly a normal traffic pattern when in fact, one, you should have never gone around, you should put the airplane down on a piece of pavement, but two, you should have immediately turned towards a runway of any kind and not even worried about trying to restart it at that altitude. I mean, Todd, you're flying right now. I presume that, you know, your instructor keeps, you know, harping on emergency procedures. And if you're doing traffic pattern procedures, I mean, the first thing is you lose the engine. You, you, you immediately make that turn right to the runway. And uh, again, getting back to the planning part of this, uh, I, fortunately, this plane had ADSB and going to Flight Radar 24, I was able to pull up a picture of the final flight. And it wasn't like this was a banner flight in the local area of the airport. Uh, she flew all the way from Riverside, California, over to just north of Beverly Hills and back again. Wow. And yet the report said, the weather uh, report in the public docket said that there was no evidence she, she, had, she had any kind of weather briefing before or during the flight. And there's gusty winds and such. Now, I'm no weather expert, and I don't have 500 hours like this person did. But if it's gusty where I am, and I'm going to fly, I don't know, 20, 30 miles somewhere else, somewhere else that has weather, I'd like to check weather at both places. And in the middle, if I could, because I want to know if what I'm seeing here is even worse over there. And I'm towing a banner, too. And, and so you know that that gusty wind is making that flight bouncy. <laughs> You're flying in turbulence. You want to be monitoring the weather, especially as you're heading back to your home airport to drop that banner. You want to know what the weather conditions are. You want to know how you're going to approach the target area to drop the banner and then eventually land. 
So why wouldn't you monitor the weather? I mean, that's just piloting 101. Um, and so the question is, why did she get so focused on all of this? The investigator should have asked those questions to really make this report a lessons learned type report for others who not only will be flying banners, but also just general aviation pilots. Because again, once she lost the banner, once she dropped the banner, she is just a general aviation pilot trying to put a Cessna 150 down on a piece of pavement. Hey, now, Todd, you mentioned earlier that it sounded like four or five people uh, wrote this. Uh, the report did mention the NTSB investigator and FAA investigator, but it also mentioned that the NTSB did not travel to the location of this crash, which is not unusual for a lot of crashes, but it seems particularly important to get better information than what they did get. And, and they can make a, they, they a, got a telephone. They can make a phone call to get her and really interview her or send the FAA over there to really interview her. It's just, uh, I, you know, to go out there. And then what was the probable cause statement, Todd? It was a very simplistic probable cause that really isn't worth uh, the, the time spent. It's like a cliffhanger. It, it made me sit there on the edge of my seat wanting more. The NTSB determines the probable causes of this accident to be, wait for it, fuel starvation due to the pilot's inadequate weather and fuel planning, which resulted in a total loss of engine power. Now, I'm no test pilot, but what does the weather what have to do with What does all that fuel? mean? <laughs> I have no understanding of what that means. Because that's not the accident. Engine failures don't cause accidents unless they explode off the front end or the wing of an airplane and cause catastrophic damage. Just because you have a lost power or an engine failure, airplanes are still capable of flying. So losing the engine is not a cause of an accident. All it does is necessitate a pilot to take alternate action to the normal actions of flying the aircraft. And then fuel starvation due to the pilot's inadequate weather and fuel planning. What what was it about the weather that had anything to do with fuel starvation? Because as I read the report, gentlemen, and I know you guys did too, there was still quite a bit of fuel on that airplane. At least four gallons. And there was more, I thought, in the aux tanks. Well, the aux tank had four in it. Yeah. So that was, was sufficient. Some in the wings as well. So that's sufficient fuel to keep that engine running if you understand how the fuel system works. Now, but, another piece of information where it kept me wanting more is in the accident report, it said a post-accident examination of the airplane found the fuel selector in the off position. Yeah. Was it in the off position before, during, or after the flight? Yes. It's not clear. Yeah, because if she went through the emergency procedures, which she shed, she <laughs> that's a tough one. She went through the emergency procedures. She would have been selecting or at least changing the fuel selector. And the question is, did she inadvertently turn it off? But I still want to know how they got 40% power. Because if you have a fuel selector that's either on or off, then how do you get how do you get an engine to run at 40% power? Now that you mention it, I've flown a Cessna 152. I haven't flown a Cessna 150. Is it normal for a Cessna 152, as this report implies and says specifically, to have an auxiliary tank? No. And, and John, I think uh, you brought this up. 
that it's the aircraft is an under experimental category so there must have been an STC for for these auxiliary wing tanks in this airplane because it put 52 gallons on on this airplane which is sufficiently more than a 152 typically holds yeah, and you know that also raises, raises some other concerns or questions in my mind and I, I spring back to the John Denver crash where it also had modifications to its fuel system. And, you know, sometimes those modifications will be made for uh, the locations for things will be made for ease of installation and not necessarily for the ease of the pilot to, to manipulate the controls. And, you know, John Denver crashed because of a, a, a fuel selector valve. And maybe this fuel selector valve here was, was uh, uh, different. And maybe she was trying to uh, move it by muscle memory and it was different and moved it to off. Yeah. That's why she lost her engine. And, and Todd, you brought up a good point early on. And that is that again, you know, we don't know how much time she actually has in this particular aircraft. She has time in a Cessna 150 or 152, but again, they are not all created equal. And this one definitely isn't. So if, if she only had an hour in the airplane, she really doesn't have a fundamental understanding. So now she's in a high stress, high anxiety situation with a loss of engine power to, I mean, either partial or complete. And now she's fumbling around trying to get through the procedures and do all the things and fly the airplane. And like John said, she could have inadvertently gone to a position that she thought was normal when in fact it was actually off. Such a tragedy for a young lady that had a bright future in front of her. Well, well, fortunately, she did survive. It's unclear, and this is something we could probably look in the, the record. Uh, the supporting documents does have her name, so if we were so interested, we could find out to see if she's still an active pilot somewhere. And again, mm -hmm. this is an uninjured pilot, survived this completely. Like you were saying before, uh, Greg, why not pick up the phone and talk very extensively with this person to ask them what went on? By the way, the supporting documentation in the public docket had a very neatly written out uh, fuel plan by the part of the pilot, which says that to me, very neat handwriting too, this person took meticulous, well, took time and had meticulous attention to writing down the fuel plan. Why not do the same thing for the weather? Just ask him. Yeah, and the fact that she didn't check the weather. And the question is, she is the pilot in command. 91.3 says you are the final authority for determining whether or not um, you're going to conduct that flight. Okay, she's the final authority. She's working for a company, a banner towing company. And so now they're complicit. Why would you send an airplane of that caliber with a banner that weighs about 35, 40 pounds into the air on, under those conditions? And I think you brought it up, John. Maybe it was a, you know, maybe they were of a mistaken belief that because of the uh, the modification to the airplane, eh, it's not a big deal. It can handle this kind of weather. Yeah, and sure. this is a flight that took the the pilot uh, took off at about uh, oh, uh, it was over about an hour, almost two hours in the air, about two thousand feet above the ground most of the time. Um, over Los Angeles, a heavily congested place where, in my opinion, this might have been a high-stress environment for several reasons. Yes, there are many airports in the L.A. area, 
But if there was a problem that developed somewhere between Riverside, California, and just north of uh, Beverly Hills, where are you going to land? And yeah. if you think that this is a, a tough sledding with this banner behind you, would you want to drop it somewhere over the L.A. basin thinking, well, even if I successfully drop it, even if it doesn't hurt anybody, there are lawyers galore in L.A. My company will get sued and I'll be fired. I don't know what kinds of stress was or decision making stress was going through this person's mind, but there was a lot going on. No information about the weather. Pilot might have regretted that in the middle of the flight, but it was too late then. Uh, there's issues going on. And especially at the end of the flight, the decisions that this person was making was happening at the end of a two-hour flight that was probably high stress for most of the flight, in my opinion. Yeah. Hey, well, Todd, when you go flying, do you always have full tanks in the airplane when you show up? I don't always have full tanks, depending on the mission I'm doing. If it's one where I know that from the past I'll have enough for, let's say, three hours of uh, fuel, I'm only going to be up for an hour or less, no problem. But I'm doing any kind of cross-country, I want to fill the tanks up. How do you verify that? Well, the fuel gauges are the least reliable uh, indicator on the aircraft. I always check those. But I also physically check the fuel tanks by climbing up and opening the cap and looking at it. And after it's filled up by the fueler, if it is filled up by the fueler, I look at it uh, before and after. Greg, we'll have to get a Mowali stick. Yep, we will. Yep, absolutely. Because there's a lot of times where if the uh, if the fuel is down below the tab, you really can't see the uh, how high it is in the tank. And um, a good friend of ours, Wally Funk, who uh, I was blessed to uh, to work with for a long time, and she was actually one of my first mentors at the NTSB came up with an idea of basically a stick that had graduation uh, marks on it. You would stick it in the tank and you could actually stick the tank and know how much fuel was in that tank. So um, if you couldn't see the fuel level, you could then stick the tank and understand that if it's an inch <laughs> on the bottom of the stick, you know, you didn't have a lot of fuel versus two or three inches on the stick. So if yeah, it's not well, at least washing the, the bottom of the tabs, I want to have more fuel in there. Uh, yeah. Regardless of how much I'm flying. Yep, absolutely. Well, gentlemen, uh, you know, there's a lot of issues and, and definitely a lot of lessons that could be learned had this investigation been more thorough um, as far as the investigator taking the time to, to ferret out some good information. The fact is, is that we have a live pilot. So that's that's the opportunity to get some good information to be able to provide not only in the report to make sure that it's you know clear and concise and you come up with an accurate probable cause, but other people are going to learn from this particular accident. So um, it's just sad that it was cryptic and it was a very simplistic probable cause that really makes no sense. So with that being said, Todd, I will leave you with the second to the last words of today. Well, in this particular event, there was a lot uh, left on the table, a lot of questions left on the table that need to be answered. But one thing that was very clear to me, uh, given that the evidence was overwhelming that the pilot didn't do any sort of pre-flight uh, weather briefing, in my mind, even knowing a little bit about the weather from the latest briefing will reduce your stress level should things go wrong. And John... After those pearls of wisdom, I'm going to leave you with our last words. All right. And weather briefings, pre-flights, I mean, I preach them every show. And this is a good example 
of an assumption being made about fuel. The airplane was fueled with 52 gallons earlier in the day. They knew how long, it, or she knew how long it flew. She made an assumption that she only burned 24 gallons out of the 52. Never checked it, right? You know what? You know uh, everybody should be aware of what when you break up the word assumption, what it means. Hmm. And uh, this is one case where she made an assumption that, that went too far. So please, when you're going to go flying, good good weather briefing, good pre-flight on your airplane. When you get in it and go fly, put your head on a swivel because we have a lot of mid-airs. This is a good example right here if somebody else was in the patent and she was going to uh, head for the airport like she should have turned it right in and make a landing, uh, would have been a good example of being able, the guy behind her, being able to see the airplane making an unscheduled turn and respond accordingly. So you go flying, you've got to keep all your wits about you. You have to use all your senses if you're going to fly and, and fly safely. So please, fly safely. We can't lose the audience. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.